Wasn't that beautiful? Does your heart, does your soul pant for the Lord as a deer pants for water? I hope so. I truly do. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I need to give you some uh, sad news. I think some of you already have already heard. Uh, some of you know uh, Roxana Cop. Um, we found out not too long ago, but back on September the 15th, Roxana Cop uh, went to bed at night and she didn't wake up. And um, she attended uh, Central, but she was between us and Rancho Cordova. And um, we don't have all the details regarding her memorial service yet, but I know some of you knew Roxana Cop, and uh, she helped out at the food pantry occasionally. And um, as soon as we do know something, we will let uh, the church family know when, uh, when that service is. So I'm sorry to be the bearer of, of sad news, but Roxana loved the Lord, and we have a hope that we'll get to see Roxana again. I know she had that hope that if uh, she were to die before Jesus returned, that he would raise her uh, back to life again when he, when he comes back. I'm, uh, I'm excited, uh, too, uh, with regard to uh, the upcoming Revelation seminars. You know, uh, the end of death and sorrow and suffering will come when Jesus said, when this gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world for witness to all nations. It's our contribution to hastening the coming of Jesus is sharing the word of God, amen? And I'm just so excited uh, for Pastor Mike and uh, Jan, who's our Bible worker here, and one of our elders, uh, Andre Hope, who will be sharing um, 13 messages in the community uh, related to the book of Revelation and the last days and uh, how to be ready for Jesus' soon return. Uh, you have in your bulletins those uh, events, the times, um, you have uh, the, the locations, we have some brochures that are coming soon, and you'll be able to take those to your neighbors and friends and share those uh, with them as well. These locations are kind of strategically placed around Sacramento within our, <clears throat> within our uh, assigned territory, if we could say that, uh, west of here, moving closer towards Sacramento, south of here, and then just northeast of here, going toward Arden Arcade. And uh, so please pray for the presenters. Uh, please pray for our community as they uh, receive uh, the invitation and also be praying that uh, God will help you know how to invite someone in, a, in an effective manner so they can come and hear these very important messages. We're going to do eight of them out in the community, then all, all three programs will converge right here at Sacramento Central for the remainder five presentations and then uh, we will do a, another series behind that two nights a week in the chapel, Tuesdays and Fridays, um, on the book of Revelation. And we'll cover some things we didn't cover in, in those 13 parts. So we're very excited. Please keep that in prayer. Uh, we know Jesus is coming soon, and this is a very important day and hour in which to share, uh, share the message he's given us. Uh, it, was, it was just nice to see Ray Renhifo up here on the platform praying. Uh, I didn't mention last week, but Ray and Elizabeth, and, and many of you know, they've been away, they were away on a mission trip. And so, Ray and Elizabeth, welcome back. We're so glad to have you. We're so sorry as well about what you've had to deal with, with your house being broken into, but I know God has been taking care of you and has been helping and blessing you. Um, they've just thrown themselves back into God's work, irrespective of the setback that they've had, and so we're so grateful. And, um, and by the way, if you want to 
uh, if you want to uh, hear, a more, hear a little bit more about uh, their mission experience, I believe, Elizabeth, are you sharing? It's going to be, you're going to be sharing something during Morning Manor on October the 17th, so not next Sabbath, the Sabbath after. And uh, you know we have Morning Manor here at 9 o'clock. Amen? Amen. Morning man is here at nine o'clock. And uh, then right after that is central study hour and the various classes for the children and so on. Uh, so but Elizabeth will be sharing their, uh, their story uh, of, of, of their experiences on their mission trip. And uh, so please come out looking forward to, to hearing that. Well, this morning is our is the final presentation in a 12-part series. And you know, when when, I, when we share the time up here in the pulpit, it seems like the series has gone on a lot longer than just 12 weeks, but it, uh, it is 12, this is the 12th message. Uh, the series has, is entitled The Whole Truth, and uh, we've been talking about living between two truths, and today's message is entitled One Hand Clapping, One Hand Clapping. And um, by the way, if you missed any of the presentations, of course, we have our CD and DVD ministry. You can pick up the, uh, the DVDs or CDs from there. Uh, you can also go to our website and uh, go to click on um, uh, media resources, scroll down, and you'll be able to see, uh, see it under receiving the word, or you'll also be able to see it under podcasts. And you can download those podcasts, either CD or uh, onto DVD. And so we have all of that available. So if you go to our website, uh, saccentral.org, you'll be able to listen to the other messages. And uh, so if something that I say today, and I assume something today, uh, be sure to go back and listen to that previous message so you understand the context in which uh, something was said. Uh, so you can review your messages, re review rather those messages there. Well, it was uh, during World War II... Winston Churchill, uh, the, uh, the British Prime Minister, was forced to make a very painful and difficult decision. The British Secret Service had just broken the Nazi code, and he had been informed that the Germans were going to go in and bomb Coventry. He had two alternatives. Number one, he could evacuate the citizens down there in Coventry and save hundreds of lives in the process at the expense of indicating to the Germans that the English had broken their code, or secondly, take no action at all, which would kill hundreds of people, but keep the information flowing and possibly save hundreds, yea, even thousands of more lives over the long term. What would you do given a decision like that? Churchill had to choose, and Churchill chose the latter, the second, uh, the second option. Now, sometimes each one of us, we are having to face choices, and uh, sometimes those choices are between two very painful realities. Let's pray, though, that God will spare us from having to make too many of this kind. Often, however, we don't need to choose between these two difficult, painful situations or choices, because as we've been learning over the course of the last several months, life is lived between two truths, tr two truths that can never and cannot ever be sacrificed. In moments like these, we must share both truths, and these truths are to be kept in healthy tension to each other, maintaining a balance as we understand God's Word and truth. Now, tension, of course, permeates our faith. Every biblical truth we know is balanced by another truth that seems to be moving in the opposite direction, but actually isn't. For example, the gift of grace doesn't come without requirements. 
without a response. Freedom is not given without responsibility. So in Christ Jesus, in our relationship with Him, our, the saving relationship we have with Jesus, we have to deal with more than just one reality at a time. Our faith is often lived out between the two truths, neither of which can be given up. Now, Christians have, and we've, we've talked about this before, have often wrestled with uh, the fact that our faith gives us more than or two realities, two or more realities that must be held in tension to each other. We affirm both, for example, the, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, uh, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, that humans are sinners and yet made in the image of God. So throughout Christian history, heresy has resulted not necessarily from someone wanting to be evil or to be heretical, but from someone taking a piece of the truth to an extreme and not doing justice to the other truths, the complementary truths as well. In reality, the devil is the mastermind behind part truths, uh, but he even gets more bold by promoting half-truth lies. You remember we talked about Genesis chapter 3, where he, uh, he came in the guise of the serpent, spoke through that serpent to Eve, and he came and he preached or shared with Eve three part truth lies. He said, you shall not surely die, you shall be like God, and you shall know good and evil. Essentially, the devil was preaching the part truth of God's grace apart from His justice. It's okay, do the thing that God has said don't do. You won't truly die. You'll actually be like God's, and you'll actually know good and evil. He was preaching the half-truth about God's grace apart from His justice. And it's important to note that the devil assured that the pair, uh, had assured that the pair that there was no real danger in eating the forbidden fruit. After she partook of the fruit, he charged them with sin, and then he left them condemned before the part-truth of God's justice apart from His grace. The devil specializes in uplifting one truth, a part-truth, to the detriment of the other and hides the other, you see. At times, the enemy of souls always, also always seeks to pit one truth against another as if they were in conflict with each other. The devil revels in dividing what God has joined and put together. The Bible says, and Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 35, the Scriptures cannot be what? Broken. The Scriptures cannot be broken. So we talked about several things that highlight the importance of believing the whole truth, not just part truth, but the whole truth. For example, you take a sphere, uh, you split the sphere and you in, uh, through the diameter of a sphere, and it makes two opposite halves out of the whole. And the same, things hap same, things happen, same thing happens when we take a, the sphere of truth and we divide it. It creates two opposite part-truth hemispheres. Yet both parts are required to make a whole. The Bible often brings two principles together, revealing that they are not in opposition to each other, but actually in harmony with each other, forming the complete truth, not just half-truths. We also talked, ab talked about the ellipse of truth. It's, the ellipse, of course, is stretched out somewhat like a, a stretched-out circle, like a, like a football. A circle has one center of focus, but an ellipse has two foci, perfectly separated so that one, if one uh, uh, focus is pushed too far from the other, that perfect eclipse no longer exists. Also, if one is emphasized over the other, the ellipse simply becomes two circles, no longer an ellipse. 
For example, we get water because of this ellipse principle. Water doesn't exist unless you have the circles of hydrogen and oxygen uh, that are brought together into the ellipse. Truth is like that. Truth must be looked at in the form of ellipse. To oppose or to ignore or underemphasize one truth against the other would make two circles destroying the ellipse. We also talked about t- twin truths. Uh, the Bible presents twin truths that are to be held in tension to each other. That's the only way for them to be completely true. Both ideas must be held in tension and thus in balance. When we think about truths being held in tension, we can think about a stringed instrument, for example. Properly attached at two right places, the instrument can be played and played very nicely. If a string's left loose, music can't necessarily be played on that stringed instrument. If it's stretched too tightly, the string will snap and it will break. Talking about living with two truths must be kept, that must be kept in healthy tension to each other does not involve anxiety and it does not involve tenseness. Neither does it refer to uncertainty, relativity, or straddling the fence. None of those things. Now, when you, uh, many of you, some of you rather, play a musical instrument, how many hands does it take to play a musical instrument, generally speaking? Two, it takes two hands to play a musical instrument. Marilyn was playing the piano here nicely and the gentleman on their guitars and they played with their two hands, you see. A piano, a harp, a guitar, a trumpet, a trombone, whatever the musical instrument is. Now, you can play an instrument with one hand, that's true, but the music you would play would be what? Somewhat incomplete, wouldn't it? That's right. You may have heard the question asked, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Now, they say it's a, a classic Zen, Buddhist Zen koan. A koan is a paradoxical antidote or, antidote or riddle. A question that has no answer. It's used in Zen Buddhism to demonstrate the inadequacy of, they say, logical reasoning given to students to aid in enlightenment. The title of today's sermon has nothing to do with Zen Buddhism. Just want to ensure some, assure some of those out there that might be thinking uh, that this morning. The message does, however have everything to do with the fact that believing part truths, dismissing or putting down complementary truth or living out just partial biblical truths in the life is the equivalent of clapping one hand. Like I, like I read recently in a thought-provoking article, beware the sound of one hand clapping. Beware the sound of one hand clapping. Uh, You know, uh, we normally have two screens with pictures on them. Right now, we have one hand clapping. Um, The the projector is at the shop down in Los Angeles, and we'll be back with us soon. And so we'll have two hands clapping here very shortly. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he taught and when he wrote, he clapped with two hands. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, if you'd be so kind. We've looked at this verse several times throughout our time together during this series. But take a look at what Paul writes here. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2 verse 20, we know this verse, it says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Paul was clapping with two hands. Galatians 2.20 contains, uh, contains those very intriguing words you see. Paul gr- presented twin truths in this particular passage that are rich theologically and must be held in healthy tension to each other. What, were, what are those, tw- those twin truths? Being crucified with Christ and yet living for Christ and Christ living through us, you see. You are dead, but you are alive. And he presents these twin truths in this one passage. But these twin truths speak also, not just theologically, but they also speak to an experience that each one of us must have in our lives, you see. That means that twin truths must be held together in tension and thus in balance in our lives as well. We are to live our lives clapping with both hands. We live in a world of competing forces, each calling for our allegiance, each calling for our attention, jobs and families, even church and our needs, they all lobby for our time. Individual recognition pulls against being a part of a group. The demand for excellence clashes with the desire to be accepting and also supporting. The inclination to show compassion argues with with the, the fear about security. But in the Christian life, twin truths don't vie for our attention. One pulling us here, one pulling us there like a tug of war game. Being a Christian means living in this world, but in anticipation of the next, for example. We are given rest, and yet we are also called to work. What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then in Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and preach the gospel. We are both given rest and we're also given a job to do, you see. Being a Christian gives us a Lord whose name is Jesus, who coordinates, and if we allow him to do so, coordinates how we keep these truths in healthy tension to each other and therefore in balance. The major cause of tension is the nature of God himself. We've talked about this as well. God is bigger than we are. None of our systems or our doctrines encompasses all there is to know about God. I think you understand what I mean when I say that. God is bigger than than anything. Our attempts to reflect His concerns or His being, while extremely helpful, are often inadequate. When we've said all we know to say, there is always more that we cannot fathom. We may and we must Share the truth that we have received about God with others. That's our calling. That's why we're here. What has been revealed is for our benefit. Still, God in certain places remains hidden and ungrasped by our best efforts, you see. The mystery of God and His purposes is retained until we reach heaven's shores. And then we'll, there we'll still be forever learning about God and His marvelous love and character, you see. Despite our desire for things to be simplistic, they are not. Simple and non-confusing, yes, but simplistic, they are not. Christians always live in between two truths. Because the gospel has, been, has placed, on us, uh, placed our footing firmly, you see, this healthy tension we experience, as someone said, uh, is always both peaceful and creative. The tension is peaceful because we've been justified by faith, and because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God, you see. And uh, the question of our allegiance to Christ has been settled, and it is settled each and every day. It's creative also because it calls us to a new experience, a new life in Jesus Christ. 
Now, there are and can be real dangers that confront each one of us when we embrace twin truths, uh, the whole truth. One of those dangers is, is that not everybody will understand. We may even lose friends. Some of you have lost friends because you've accepted and embraced the whole truth. People may worry that we don't know where we really stand on some issues. One side may accuse us of giving ground to the opposition, while the other side may say we've retreated too far. When long ignored biblical texts are allowed to challenge someone's one-sided theology, you may be accused of being too far to the right or too far to the left, no matter how unwavering you are in your commitment to biblical truth and your desire to embrace the whole truth. You remember the story, John chapter 6. As a matter of fact, turn there with me. You're welcome to do that. John chapter 6, the crowds wanted to crown Jesus. They, they, they saw the Messiah as the coming king. He was going to establish his kingdom. He was going to free the Israelites from the Roman yoke. And Jesus presented to them the whole truth about himself and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And those that listened to Jesus, you remember this is the time in John chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and if you don't, there'll be no, you will have no part of me, you see. There'll be, you won't have life. And they couldn't understand what Jesus was referring to. They, they, they were, it seems as though they were able to grasp some of it, but they didn't want to accept all of it because it shattered their hopes and their dreams about the coming Messiah, you see. And that's what truth does. It shatters our, our perceived hopes and perceived dreams. Truth brings to us reality, brings to us God's truth, which truly sets us free, which truly brings hope, which truly brings direction to our lives. And there were folk there that particular day listening, listening to Jesus talk about himself being the bread of life, eating his flesh, partaking of his And they, they, didn't, they didn't want to know about it. They didn't want to understand Jesus, you see. Your concern, your concern for, for whole truth may be viewed by some as slackening of commitment. I know of a pastor that was given a hard time by some in his congregation for spending time talking about the parables of Jesus while not talking about current events in the light of Bible prophecy for a while. And what some of these individuals fail to realize is that while it is important to know the truth or the hour, the truth of the hour in which we live, it is also very crucial to know how to live during, for Christ during those times. In Matthew chapter 7, you remember Jesus didn't say that if you know these particular things, then you'll be like a house built on a rock. What did he say? He said, if you do these things, if you know how to live, then you'll be like a house. Your spiritual house will be like, will be fortified on a rock. And when the winds and the waves uh, and all of these things come upon you and beat upon you, the winds of doctrine and the, 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 the waves of strife, you won't be moved, you see. We cannot overlook texts, all the texts. We cannot overlook any texts as we seek to understand God's will in His Word. Dealing with the whole truth is not slackening of a commitment. Twin truths do not give us two masters either, just to clarify that. We have one master and His name is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's right. A concern for embracing the whole truth is no more than a realization, as I'd mentioned before, that the tile on which you stand at any given minute is not the entire floor. It's an awareness of the breadth and the depth of the foundations with which we find, in which we find Christ. Now, validity of our commitment to Christ or, or the correctness of our views is not evidenced 
in loud, one-sided statements, but in wholeness, in integrity, and in obedience to God's truth. Dealing with the whole truth is evidence of a real commitment to truth and a confidence that truth is not going to evaporate when other facts are known. Truth is like a flower with deep roots. To enjoy it very long, you must take it out entirely. However, if you take only the top part, cut it off, what's going to happen to the flower in your hand? Eventually, it's going to wither up and it's going to die. You want the whole truth? Take the whole truth you see. Now, that's one of the dangers that folk will not understand. Your position may not understand because they are one-sided or lopsided. Another danger in dealing with the whole truth is that it may lead to copping out. When we look at the story of Jesus in John chapter 6, what ended up happening that day? Jesus revealed to people, revealed to them the whole truth about what it means to follow him, what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus. And what was Jesus saying? He was essentially saying, you've got to give up your ambitions and your dreams. You've got to give up uh, these particular things that you've believed. You've got to embrace me as the way, the truth, and the life. And to follow me means you may have to give up some uh, 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 treasured personal, uh, character, characteristic, some treasured uh, sin even in your life. And when they listened to Jesus, they didn't like what he had to say. And the Bible records some very sad words in John chapter 6, the Bible says that they left Jesus <clears throat> in verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back. And what happened? They walked with him, what? No more. They could not handle the whole truth. They did not want it. They couldn't understand it. They didn't want it. And it led them to copping out, copping out from following Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life. Now, some Christians can become so overwhelmed sometimes by the complexity of some of the issues that they give up finding the solutions. This, what's, this is what's behind our culture's on and off, against, off and on again interest in global, in, uh, in global issues like hunger, maybe even pollution and long-running wars and so on. The issues are compelling for a time, but the lack of quick solutions like we see in a one-hour TV show leaves us with feelings of despair and hopelessness. Biblical tension, on the other hand, should produce radically different results because the ultimate coherence in our lives is provided by God's grace and His Word. We don't need to despair because the Creator and the Lord of this cosmos is sovereign and because the resolution of apparent contradictions, and they are apparent, is obtained from following Jesus and a knowledge of His Word. And we won't see these things at, at odds with each other. We'll begin to see the whole truth, how beautiful it really is. There is no value, friends, in merely pondering the whole truth, merely looking at it from a distance. It must be embraced, and the whole truth must be lived out in our lives. What does it mean to be free, for example? What does it mean to be free and responsible in my walk with God? And how does this impact my performance at my job and how I handle certain problems or issues that may arise? How do both grace and law function in my life? And how do I relate to people? How do they relate to people around me? How should I live in this ever-changing world while not being of this world? Do people care to know about the truth that I hold near and dear to my heart because they know that I care about them? These are some tough questions we've got to ask ourselves and we've got to wrestle with and come to terms with, you see. Each of us must live out the whole truth. The dangers 
with embracing the whole truth. Yes, they are real. Jesus experienced that. Some of you have experienced that, and we'll continue to experience that. But danger in dealing with simply half-truths are much greater. Complementary truths, friends, cannot be ignored, for they won't go away. But to focus on the dangers of living the whole truth is as helpful as focusing on the dangers of breathing. Now, biblical guidelines, we've been talking about some of the guidelines helping us live, these guidelines that help us live and understand what it means to live the whole truth in our lives. We've been talking about those during each of these previous uh, 10, 11 presentations. But there are three arching biblical guidelines that have emerged from our study that deserve attention here, and we'll do that this morning. Each is required for the health and the life and the mission of the church. Because I want to talk now, not just simply individually, but I want to step back now and talk about the life of the church. We've been dealing with what it means personally, but what does this mean on, 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 the, on a larger scale? What does it mean to us uh, corporately as an organization, as a church, as Sacramento Central, Seventh-day Adventist Church? I want to share with you these three arching principles, and, uh, and here they are. Number one, number one, Practice whole thinking. The Bible encourages us to practice whole thinking. Someone suggested even holistic thinking. Holistic thinking is characterized by our comprehension of truth as intimately interconnected and understood only by the reference to the whole. But I'll just talk about whole thinking just for the sake of simplicity. Whole thinking, first of all, first and foremost, is humble. It's humble. It recognizes our incompleteness and liability to error. Humility is not always helpful when other people certainly are looking for answers, but at least it's honest, and at least it does not mislead anybody. Whole thinking also recognizes that no single statement can embrace the entirety of truth. Well, someone may challenge that and say, well, how about the statement, God is love? That is true. That is a true statement, but it's multifaceted. There's many things in there, you see. A statement may be true, and it may not have all the elements that give us a complete picture of truth. Every statement, even our most valued theological ones, may require qualification, and they may require explanation, lest it be exposed to abuse. For example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Does anyone know what that says? I'll read it for you here. Galatians 3, verse 28. Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful and a powerful statement. Amen? There's no doubt about that. But it requires explanation and it must be read within its context because it has often been abused. It has often been abused. Let's take a look at the context. Galatians chapter 3. We'll read verses 26, 27, and 29. Notice what it says. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, verse 29, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what is Paul doing here in verse 28? Is he obliterating the distinctions between the sexes? No, he's not. He's not obliterating the distinction between the sexes. What he is obliterating, what he is obliterating is valuations based upon the distinctions. Paul is saying it doesn't matter whether you are, whether you are, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are Jew or Greek, whether you are, are bond or free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. 
God views you the same as anyone else. doesn't matter your status. doesn't matter your, your background. doesn't matter your education. doesn't matter your gender. You're all one in Christ Jesus, you see. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not obliterating distinctions between the two groups, but he obliterates valuations based on the distinctions. He was still proud of being Jewish, and yet he argued for maintaining distinction between the sexes. He had no desire for women to be men or men to be women. Amen? Amen. The whole truth will also cause us to look for complementary truths. This is very important. When we know that a statement is true, we read it in the Word of God, we ought to ask, are there any limitations to that particular statement? And what other statements need to be looked at to prevent any misunderstanding or going to an extreme? We have to be practiced, that means in all, in all Scripture, to make sure we hear all of what Jesus is saying. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4? Man shall not live, not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This means we'll need to become practiced at studying the Word of God and rightly dividing the Word of truth. No sloppy workmanship is, is, is asked for as we study God's Word. We'll also need to learn in the context of the church to read people and situations be, because the church does its work in the context, the framework of uh, whole truth, our theology and our work and our mission. We must read and we need to read texts that deal both with the certainty of salvation and also the threat of apostasy. We must, uh, when we read texts about grace, we must also read the texts that refer to law, faith and works, God's sovereignty and, and man's free will, Christ's divine as well as his human nature, justification and sanctification, freedom and responsibility, strength and weakness, being in the world but not being of the world. We must embrace all the truth. Amen? Amen. With increasing frequency, however, critical scholars argue that tension within the Scriptures is a sign of a later addition to the particular text. Now, so, for example, if Paul wrote about mutual submission, which he wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, he says, submit therefore one to another. And by the way, he goes on to explain what that submission looks like within the context of the marriage relationship. But where Paul says submit to one another, but then later on he says, uh, he talks about authority. Some folk, critical scholars will say, well then, the uh, statement about mutual submission, we like that. That's obviously inspired. But his comments regarding authority, we don't kind of like that, and so that must have been an addition made by someone else later on, you see. And this is what happens. This method of Bible study, however, for God's people cannot be accepted. Writers in the ancient world were not simplistic, and the situations they dealt with were very complex as ours. We ought to expect these biblical tensions within a writer's thought, both because of the nature of the material and the variety of the situations they had to contend with. We don't understand any writer until we have dealt with all the writer has said and have dealt with his apparent contradictions. And by the way, they are not contradictions, they are apparent. To us they might be, initially, until we study and we begin to see the whole truth, you see. The result of whole thinking will prove to be beneficial for God's last day church. People will not find it necessary to separate their daily lives from their church life, because with whole thinking, the problems and the realities we would just as soon avoid are faced squarely. Thus, each of us grow. As each of us grow, the church is strengthened. So is its purpose, and so 
is its mission. As God's people grow in Christ, so the depth and understanding of the church grows and increases along with it as well. And so number one, we are to practice whole thinking. That's what the Bible calls us to. Jesus said, man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second arching guideline that emerges from our study that requires uh, the life, the health, that is required rather for the life, the health, and the mission of the church is the need to promote unity and the allowance for diversity. Let me explain. The variegated characters, character of the Bible requires us to speak of diversity. Its focus on God's relationship with his people, to his people, evidences unity. Paul used the metaphor of a human body with its diverse parts working together to describe the unity and diversity in the church. Go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, if you'd be so kind. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. I know some of this is a little technical, but I'm hoping we can break it down a little bit here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Notice he said, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of, of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Jesus Christ. Paul said, you are many members, but you comprise what? How many bodies? Just one. Many members, one body. Diversity, unity, you see. Within the church, we have a diversity of minds. We have a diversity of personalities, a diversity of gifts, and diversity of talents. The church, as someone suggested, is a garden with its variety of plants and its flowers. When we think of the Bible, when we think of the Bible, think of the Gospels in particular. Why is it that God inspired both Matthew, both all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write about the same story, to write about Jesus? Why did it require four writers? And it wasn't just the four writers, you have also Paul and you have Peter, and they have their epistles and they talk about Jesus and his teachings as well. You take the various authors of Scripture and they're talking about the same things. Why do we have 66 books in the Bible? Would one book not have been enough? Because God took the different personalities, the different backgrounds and experiences, inspired these individuals to write these, inspired their thoughts, and they wrote these words, you see. And we have it from varying perspectives, but they all bring together a unity of thought, don't they? When you come to the Bible, even though you've got 66 books and you've got 40-some different authors, there is one divine mind behind each of these authors, behind each of these books, and that's God. You can see it. Varied thoughts, varied personalities, varied backgrounds, but they all highlight and uplift the truth of God's Word, the whole truth you see. Multiple facets of minds bring together a more complete picture of God and His plan for us. That's why it was, took 40 different authors. That's why it was four authors, writers, to write the Gospels, you see. Something embedded in human nature affirms both unity and diversity. Alfred Whitehead was noted to say men require of their neighbors something sufficiently akin to be understood, something sufficiently different to provoke attention, and something great enough to command admiration. This world would be unpleasant, an unpleasant place if everyone were alike or if no one were similar enough to others in order to relate to them. The whole truth with its recognition of the incompleteness of each person, requires both unity and diversity. Since we have limited knowledge and limited vision, we need the insight and the perspective of other Christians to attain wholeness. Christians who know suffering, who know loneliness, can help others face similar 
challenges. This is how God works. This is why he put us together. This is why he brought the church together with its various members. Unity is a gift. Our unity doesn't derive from the fact that we are from the same cultural, racial, or educational backgrounds, or from the same economic level. It doesn't happen that way. Churches ought not be made up of this type of sameness. Nor is unity something we create. Unity is a gift from God and is based on our connection to Christ and living according to His Word and His truth, you see. If we are a part of the body of Christ, then according to Ephesians 5 verse 30, we are members of the body. And it's interesting, in the same book in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25, Paul said that we are members of each other. So he says if we are part of the body of Christ, then we are members of Him. And then we are also members of one another. To belong to Christ, in fact, means that we belong, interestingly enough, to one another. Community. Our task, friends, is to maintain unity that God has given us. This is accomplished by love. This is accomplished by standing on truth. Ephesians chapter 4 is a classic treatment of unity in the church, which instructs us to put up with and love one another and to speak, according to verse 15, to speak the truth in love. At first glance, love and truth seem to be in conflict, but in fact, the Bible speaks of them being or going together, you see. Truth without love is harsh. Love without truth is merely emotional and sentimental. Truth without love is harsh, unchristlike, and can be destructive. Together, they preserve unity and lead us to grow in Jesus Christ until that perfect day, until that day that Jesus comes back again, you see. Now, we must understand that unity is not uniformity, where God's people are pressed to think the same thing, to speak exactly the same thing, and to do exactly the same thing. Is the ear the mouth? Is the hand the foot? No, that's not. They all have their different functions, right? Their different roles to make the whole work as a whole. Diversity is just as important to the life of the church's unity. God seems to relish in variety, both in creation and in people. Grace is given to each person so that they, he or she may minister. And, and we are given, uh, people are given as gifts to the church. Did you know that you're a gift? You are a gift. God has equipped with you, with you, in you certain gifts and talents, and you then become a gift to the local church, local congregation. You're a gift to the church. You are equipped in a variety of ways for different ministries in the church. To accept diversity is to recognize the unique and necessary contributions of each person. Now, division, division, being divisive is wrong, but diversity is essential. In this church, there are 20-some different ministries each person sharing their gift and their talent. We have our children's ministries from our, our Sabbath school classes. And then in, within the Sabbath school class, you've got individuals coming in, telling a, a nature nugget to the kids. And then some are playing the piano or the guitar, or they're telling the, the, the lesson study to, sharing the lesson study to the child. It takes very gifts and talents to do that. And then you have your other ministries like men and women's ministries and, and media ministries and, and health ministries. And it requires different people doing different things. In order for the church to function as a whole, it takes different kinds of personalities, different minds. We are a garden where there are multiple flowers and plants in that garden. Now, when we discuss unity and we discuss diversity, it implies a parallel discussion of how to maintain individuality while belonging to a community like the church. Both are valued. And there's always a movement back and forth, it seems, between the responsibility of the individual 
and his and her involvement in the community. In our culture, we have overemphasized the individual. It was said once by one individual, he said, our peril, both in social politics and in religious belief, is self-sufficient and self-conscious individualism, ignorant of history and unequal to affairs. We have now too much individualism. What we have not is character. So we would say, if it feels good, do it, irrespective of how the community feels. And we forget that we are, no man is an island. Individualism does not work. Despite the emphasis on the responsibility of the individual and the emphasis on individual salvation, and those things are important and they are true, we should, not, we should, focus, we should focus as much time on what it means to be a part and live together in the community, the community of faith, the church. Ours is a corporate structure. We worship and we also work together. We help each other understand the truth and we also share in the many tasks of the church. That's why I expect to see so many of you tomorrow morning at our work bee, because we just all work together, amen? On the other hand, friends, the individual is never lost in the group, nor is the group to be blamed for the individual's actions. In sects and false religions, the group is always superior to the individual, and they control the individual. Jim Jones and David Koresh tragedies are a painful reminder of that. In true communities, though, in the Christian church, in this church, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, the identity of both individual and community is kept in focus. Each person has the responsibility to, a responsibility to address and to support each other. If a person concludes that truth doesn't apply in his or her ca- case, other people in the church must bring that individual back to reality by God's grace through, grace through love and through tact. If a person loses their job, or they struggle with doubt, the community is supposed to be a basis of support and encouragement and help. The tensions in the Christian faith are an expression of both unity and diversity, and the importance of both and the individual and of the community. So that's number two, unity and diversity. Number three, the third arching guideline for handling the whole truth in the church is simply accepting reality, accepting the truth Often people seek to avoid the reality of what it means to be human and deny its limitations. They deny the the facts of their own existence. It's as if we aren't really good enough. But then that attitude is as old as the Garden of Eden. Eve sinned when she was tempted, when she attempted to get out of life more than God had put into it and given to her. And often we do the same thing. At the root of sin is pride. And pride requires that we be more than human. Pride requires we be like the Most High. Someone once said that sin is the refusal to be human. And, and And within this context, I think I understand what that individual is talking about. Apart from a relationship from God with God, human existence really doesn't have a lot to be desired. As valuable and as wonderful as a as creation as a creation we are. There is no ultimate value or meaning for any person apart from the value that God places on them, both through the fact that He's created us and that He has redeemed us through His death on the cross. But then God never intended His creation to be viewed separately from Himself. We must accept the limits of our humanity and embrace the whole truth about our existence. Turn with me to our Psalm, if you would. Psalm 8, the eighth section of Psalm, the division of Psalm. Psalm 8, verse 5. Notice the wonderful things that God says about humanity. 
This is for those who might think less of themselves than they ought to. Psalm 8, verse 5, notice the Bible says, You have been made a little lower than what? Than the angels, that's right. And you have, and you, that's talking about God, has crowned him, mankind, with glory and honor. Did you get that? We are, we are made in the image of God, and we are made a little lower than the angels, and God has crowned us with glory, and he's also crowned us with, with honor, you see. Now, we are not animals. We are not animals, and we do not come from animals, amen? But like the beasts, we all perish in this body. Look at Psalm 49, verse 12. Notice how the psalmist puts it. Psalm 49, 12. He says, Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. We are, we are essentially both temporal and capable of an unending life that measures with the life of God. We have a mortal body, but one day God is going to give us immortality. Amen? No doubt about it. We are both weak, and yet we are strong in God's strength. We have limited knowledge, but we have powerful and creative minds. We are subject to suffering, to death, to sin and the actions of others, but we are capable of healing and being free and being absolutely responsible with the freedom that Jesus has given us. We are victims, it's true, of sin and of Satan, but recipients of redemption, and by God's grace can live godly lives in this present world. Being human, we have a variety of physical needs and drives, of space, food, shelter, and pleasure. It also means that we have less tangible, but no less real needs and drives as well. Recognition, meaning, productivity, human relationships, and a vibrant and living relationship with the creator of all things. None of us can live authentically while attempting to deny these realities. Being human is not negative. There's a lot that is done by humans that is not Christian. There is no doubt about that. There is a lot that is done by humans that is sad and that is, frankly, frightening. Just think about what took place in Oregon this week. But whatever is Christian, reveals what humanity can become when connected to Jesus Christ. Friends, denying our humanity or any part of it will only cause problems. As one person put it, to live up to something one is not, one has to give up the little that he is. In denying what we are, we lose the one value that we have, our humanity, that God deems precious and valuable. He said in, Jer he said in uh, Jeremiah that you are valuable and that you are precious. Sorry, that was in Isaiah. You are precious and that you are valuable. May God help us, friends, to be all that he intended us to be. To do so, we'll have to accept our mortality, but we must also anticipate the gift of immortality when Jesus comes back. We will have to accept our limitations without denying the capabilities that God has given us. We will have to know what it means to be in this world, yet living in anticipation for the next. Our share in human suffering cannot be denied, but it can be reinterpreted as we participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Friends, we ought to live biblically. We ought to live biblically. To live biblically is to embrace the whole truth and to live wisely in that truth. As Christians, we are in the world, but we are not of it. At the same time, we are both saint and sinner. We are a part of the culture and in this world, but we are shaped by our relationship 
with Jesus Christ and his unfailing word. We are saved by grace and thus freed to obey and to live that law by the grace that saved us. We have nothing in which to boast, but everything is ours in Christ. We identify with both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot work for our salvation, but with salvation, we cannot stop doing the work of Christ. In Him, we have freedom to serve. This is what it means to live the whole, the whole truth in our lives. Knowing the whole truth allows us to live a, as a whole person and to do justice to all of the everlasting gospel. Far from being frustrating or destructive, living biblical tension in Christ is truly peaceful and creative. We experience the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give us. Friends, Christians have the responsibility. You and I, as last-day Christians, have the responsibility of holding both truth in our hands and choosing how that tension is to be lived out in our lives and in each and every single situation. The grace of God, which provides the coherence to our lives, is the power by which we live the whole truth. Friends, by God's grace, we live between two truths. In closing, I want to share just a little quote that I shared with you in my first message here uh, with the, in this series. And it's just a simple quote, and it's a prayer. It's an appeal. May God keep us from the fanaticism of the extremes and the mediocrity of the middle road. May Jesus continue to lead us. May Jesus continue to guide us. May we embrace the whole truth and allow Jesus' grace to work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's going to be our closing song here. It's number 537, He Leadeth Me. We want Jesus to lead and guide us by his Holy Spirit into all truth, amen, and allow that whole truth to be lived out in our lives. Let's embrace the whole truth. What do you say? Amen. Please stand with us.
embrace the whole truth here this morning, all that Scripture has to say, not only just accepting it theologically, but bringing it into your, your life. Is that your desire here this morning? Amen. Let's pray together. Eternal Lord, thank you that the truth of God's Word, your Word, Lord, is met in Jesus Christ, who embraces it all. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we embrace Jesus, we embrace your truth. Lord, help us to not live lopsided. Help us not to be lopsided theologically. Help us not to emphasize one component of truth to the detriment of the other. Help us to be careful not to say something that would lead a person toward fanaticism or to, to lead them to misunderstanding your truth. Help us, Lord, also in our lives to not live lopsided Christian lives. Help us not to live just, not just in the sunshine of Jesus' forgiving grace, but also under the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit for a sanctified life and for ministry for you. Oh Lord, help us to be balanced in our experience, to live, to be in this world, yes, but to not to be of it, to embrace faith and works, grace and law, God's sovereignty and our free will. Help us to embrace all of these wonderful truths so that we might live a life that reflects your goodness and your grace. Oh Lord, help us Help us, never to, help us to never forget that it is by your grace that we are saved. It is by your grace that we live our lives. It is by your grace that we live for you. We embrace that today. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. Keep us. Bless us. Thank you for walking with us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us. And we give you praise and thanks for all of these wonderful things, wonderful gifts. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.